Hello, welcome back to Forensic Friends. I'm your host, Shelly, and I am back on this whole dating app nonsense. It's it's a long story, but I haven't actually gone out on any physical dates, so don't worry about that. Obviously, I'm going to be approaching this very safely, even though I am fully vaccinated. That doesn't actually mean I'm 100% immune, so of course that's being taken into account. But I do have a, well, I guess it's a fun story to share, but the event that took place was not in itself fun. So I started talking with this guy who is pretty cute and we got along like right off the bat. The conversation was very natural. I find with dating apps, the conversation is usually very stale and I never get interested enough in someone because it's so stale to want to ask them out. I'm also very shy, so asking people out is a little difficult for me. But, like, I rarely actually want to meet up with someone I talk to through the dating app because they just, like, the conversation doesn't excite me. If they ask if I want to, like, if they ask me out, I might say yes just because it is easier to hold a conversation in real life usually. But normally it doesn't really happen because I'm so bored by the conversation already. But with this guy, like, it went really well, or the chatting at first went really well, and I was having a lot of fun with the conversation. I don't think there was really that much flirting. I'm not entirely aware of how to flirt, so that could be an issue, but I didn't feel like I was being flirted with. But like, whatever, right? And a week passed, and my friends were like, it's odd that you guys are still chatting on the app and that he hasn't asked you out. Like, I guess a week is kind of a longish time for someone to not ask someone out. And I actually put on my profile for this particular app that the best way to ask me out is to do it because I'm very shy and probably not going to make the first move. So, you know, that's kind of that's kind of a prompt there. But like he didn't he didn't ask me out. The conversation was still kind of continuing, but it, it was definitely starting to go into a lull. Like there's there's only so much you can keep talking about. At one point, he asks me what my background is. And honestly, this question could go either way. I guess it's maybe giving people benefit of the doubt, but I'm not going to assume this is going to be followed by some kind of microaggression, especially because we live in a very diverse city. So I understand some curiosity, like, oh, like about your background and that kind of thing. Like, it's it's just a curiosity thing. So I answered that I'm Chinese, but according to my family, I am a banana. He asked what a banana meant, and I explained yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And then I, I just joked, like, it's not my fault, or I can't help it that I'm sick of Chinese food. You know, saying that I don't like Chinese food, and that's why my parents called me whitewashed. I mean, it's not just, just that. He then proceeds to go, oh, I love Chinese food. My friends and I love to go to this one place, and he named the restaurant, which I'm not familiar with. And then he asks, do you have any recommendations to give me? For me and my friends to try out. And. And. I. 
I mean, I got a consensus from people I talked to about this that I was rightfully annoyed by this because that was, to me, a perfect opportunity to ask someone out. They're talking about food that they don't like. Okay, so ask them what food they do like and then say, hey, maybe we can find a place that has food that you do like. Or, you know, let's try this one place that I heard of. Like I said, I am not good at flirting and I'm not good at asking people out, but I felt like if I were interested in someone and they brought up something like that, I would have been right there. But it's not just that he didn't ask me out. It's that he asked me for recommendations for him and his friends. <laughs> Why are you talking to a girl on a dating app and asking for food recommendations for you and your friends? It just, I, I just, and never, and again, and I did say I didn't like Chinese food. Why are you asking me for recommendations when I specifically said I don't like Chinese food? What, like, do you assume just because I'm Chinese and therefore I know good Chinese restaurants, even though I said I don't like Chinese food? So I just ended up saying, oh, I only eat Chinese food with my parents. I don't go like I wouldn't go to a restaurant for it. And then and I know he's joking and I think he might be trying to be flirty by teasing me, but he just goes, well, then what are you good for, Shelly? And that just hit the wrong way. Like, it's just in very poor taste because it's like, are you talking to me because you're interested in me? Like, we are on a dating app. Or, like, did you just see, oh, Chinese girl, Chinese food, make a connection? Like, what? I was going to answer back just because I kind of wanted the last word to just be like, well, sorry to disappoint and then not answer him again. But then... I forgot to do that, and then I was just too lazy to even bother, so I ended up basically ghosting him. And yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much what happened. Uh, it was stupid and annoying, and it's just frustrating, I guess, or disappointing because, like, you know, I I wasn't sure where it was gonna go, but I was excited that I was at least like able to talk to this guy and feel excited about the conversation like actually be enjoying the conversation rather than going through this like 20 questions which is what usually happens with people on dating apps but yeah and then it just turned out it wasn't even that it didn't go anywhere it turned out that he was basically an idiot i like i don't know what else to say i'd also come across an actual incel account. I did post a screenshot of a portion of the bio on the Instagram, which is at Forensic Friends Podcast. So if you want to check that out, it's quite alarming and also very, very cringy. There's your warning. Anyway, I don't have a segue, so we're just going to jump into the topic. We are going back into abnormal psychology, just continuing where we left off the last time. I wanted to talk about more kind of slightly historical approaches to mental health because in the last episode we talked we did go kind of further back in history so this is more of kind of the basis of what's more of a modern look at psychology and psychiatry so we have the biomedical approach so an example of how this came to be or came to be a thing was a study at what was known at the time as general paresis which had behavioral and psychological symptoms so Pasteur, you might know that name as in like pasteurized milk, pasture pipettes, 
he discovered that the cause of this disease was actually a bacteria known as Treponema pallidum, aka syphilis. So this supported the view that mental illness is actually a physical illness and should thus be treated as such. In the 19th and earliest and in the 19th and early 20th century, Emile Kreplin, I think, purported that all mental illness has an organic, meaning physical, cause. He had detailed descriptions and classifications of mental illnesses, which illustrated a pattern of symptoms that defines a disorder. So with this kind of classification, he had the course of the disease, the prognosis, the onset, and the symptoms. And this is still the basic of modern psychiatric classification. Unfortunately, as were uh, many scientists at the time, he was a racist dick. He was a quote-unquote social Darwinist with an agenda in eugenics and racial hygiene. So as you might imagine, his, his link between the physical and the mental was used to perpetuate a lot of incredibly terrible racial stereotypes about anyone who's not white or specifically not white European. So going with the biomedical approach, treatments would include cocaine, of course, this was in the 1930s, manganese, castor oil, the injection of animal blood for some reason, and I guess increase oxygen and carbon dioxide. They also tried to treat using prolonged sleep induced through barbiturates. And someone named Manfred J. Sackel actually developed insulin coma therapy, which was used to treat heroin addicts in Berlin by giving them small doses of insulin during their withdrawal period, and I guess rendering them comatose, which sounds kind of awful, although I guess that person is also not experiencing the symptoms of withdrawal, but still going through withdrawal, so... Uh. <laughs> By the late 50s and the early 60s, there were several medications established that included neuroleptics and major tranquilizers. So you have your haloperidol and your Valium. These sedative-like medications were often used as antipsychotics. It was kind of like a means to subdue the person's behavior rather than a treatment, but I'm not sure if they really understood that distinction. Then you have the psychoanal psych then you have the psychoanalytical approach. You've all heard of Freud, I'm sure. Um, he believed that quote personality change occurs with redirection of a person's psychic energy, which I of course I knew about like Freud and like his psychoanalysis stuff, not in huge detail prior to going to this lecture, but I didn't think that there was a psychic element involved. It doesn't really come across in a lot of mainstream representations of these theories. So Freud believed that nothing is done accidentally, that there's a reason behind every act, thought, and feeling. Everything is an expression of our mind, and this idea was called psychic determinism. So he proposed different levels of consciousness. You have your conscious conscious part of the mind, which is what we are aware of, your pre-conscious, which is memories that could be recalled, and then your unconscious consciousness, <laughs> which are feelings that lie beyond awareness. And 
Freud also proposed several components of someone's personality. So you have your id, which is kind of like the pleasure part of your mind, which is just your motivations, what you want. This exists in the preconscious and the unconscious part mostly. Then you have your ego, which is the reality part of the mind. So this is your conscious, preconscious, and unconscious. And you have your superego, which encapsulates your values, ideals, morality. And this kind of, this was represented as like adjacent to your id and ego. Going back to determinism, the reasons behind your thoughts, feelings, or behaviors could be discovered if the unconscious could be examined. So Freud believed that most symptoms of mental illness are caused by unconscious motivations. Essentially, they're looking at how people cope with their sexual and aggressive instincts within a civilized society. A part of the mind creates certain urges, including sexual or aggressive urges. Another part of the mind knows what society expects of you. And then the last part of you tries to satisfy those urges within the constraints of society and morality. And of course, we move into the part of Freud's theories that make me extra uncomfortable which is the psychosexual stages of development. Quote, Children see sexual gratification, already problematic there, at each, at each stage by investing libidinal energy in a specific body part, where libidinal energy is also known as the life instinct and includes self-preservation and sexual instincts. So failure to resolve a conflict at a particular state could result in the child being fixated. I think the more common trope is like an oral fixation that people who tend to smoke have an oral fixation because they never resolve their oral stage of psychosexual development. I think it's pretty obvious why this makes me feel a little ick. I'm not even talking about the Oedipal complex here, so... Uh. And then you have the behavioral model psychology, which basically talks about conditioning. You have operant conditioning, which is associating actions with consequences. So this is your reward and punishment kind of system, your negative and positive reinforcement. And you have classical conditioning, which I think many people have heard of, Pavlov's dogs. So this is the association of two things or events resulting in an involuntary response. So for people who don't know of Pavlov's experiment, I don't remember like the specifics, but I think I have the gist of it off the top of my head. He would basically ring like a bell or something every time the dogs would be fed. So eventually the dog started associating the ring of the bell with food and they would salivate in response to the food. So even when food wasn't being brought out with the ring of a bell, they would still start to salivate when they hear a bell ring. Both of these greatly influenced the development of behavior therapy by changing how you react instinctively, basically, to certain events or ideas. And there's actually a movement called anti-psychiatry which really involves two central, I guess, issues with modern psychiatry, which are that specific definitions or criteria for current diagnoses are vague and arbitrary. 
there's too much room for different interpretations to meet scientific standards. So for example, different countries might actually diagnose you based on different criteria, obviously due to some cultural differences. And the other issue is that current prevailing psychiatric treatments are ultimately more damaging than helpful. There was a idea proposed by a Dr. S. Saz, who claims that the mind is not the brain, mental functions are not reducible to brain functions, mental diseases are not brain diseases, and that finally, mental diseases are not even diseases at all. It's basically saying that known mental illnesses like anxiety and depression are, quote, intrinsic to the human condition, but they are not diseases in the pathological sense. Other criticisms the movement has with psychiatry is the inappropriate and overuse of medical concepts to understand the mind and society, including the miscategorization of normal reactions to extreme situations as disorders. They take issue with the fact that a scientifically or clinically ill-founded system of categorical diagnoses that tends to stigmatize patients. They say that there is an invalidated exclusion of other approaches to mental distress, and there's a power imbalance between patients and psychiatrists. And also the institutional environment is often experienced by patients as demeaning and controlling, which leads to an unexamined abuse or misuse of power with patients often being treated against their will. That is less common now, although I do believe it can still happen. And there's a compromise to medical and ethical integrity between links with pharmaceutical and insurance companies within certain countries where those uh, industries have a lot of power. So I think just from a scientific standpoint, I do take issue with some of the stances of the anti-psychiatry movement, largely that they don't believe there's a link between your brain and mental disorders. I think a lot of people understand that there have been evidence of links between even just like certain activity in certain lobes or certain neurotransmitters being associated with people with certain mental disorders. So this is, I, I think, a little outdated, but you know, it's a thing. So then in a way, the best of both worlds would be a hybrid approach where you look at a more humanistic approach and societal-based approach with science and the biomedical approach. So I want to talk about logotherapy, which is from the Greek word logo, meaning rational thinking, because this was actually, I do, I do believe that this is the basis for a lot of current modern forms of treatment. And the story of, of the founder of this type of therapy is actually really interesting. It was developed by an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist who was also a Holocaust survivor. His name was Viktor Frankl, I think. Frank and then an L at the end. He had spent three years in concentration camps during World War II and had observed that those who survived usually found some kind of meaning in the experience. For example, they would focus on a task that they needed to complete. For him personally, his desire to rewrite a manuscript that had been confiscated when he got to Auschwitz was a huge motivating factor in his survival. His theories have three main components. First is that each person has a 
healthy core. And the focus of this theory is to enlighten a person to their own internal resources and then provide them with the tools to access those resources. And the last component is that life offers purpose and meaning, but it doesn't owe you a sense of fulfillment or happiness. So it's kind of implying that you are responsible for seeking that on your own. His philosophy proposed that humans are driven to find a sense of meaning and purpose, which can be discovered by creating a piece of work or accomplishing some task, experiencing something fully or loving someone, which I think is really sweet, and also by the attitude that one adopts toward unavoidable suffering. Because although suffering is a part of life, you can still realize that you can choose how to react to that suffering. For example, a man had consulted Frankel for his severe depression following the death of his wife. And Frankel told him to consider what would have happened if he had died first and his wife had been forced to mourn his death to, like, flip the situation. The man realized that his own suffering spared his wife from having experienced that, which really helped relieve his depression. And, like, this is obviously a really sweet and romantic story, but I don't think, you know, that's going to be, that's going to work for everyone. But I guess the gist of it is that this man found some kind of, like, some kind of silver lining to this situation. He would rather suffer rather than having his wife suffer. Now, logotherapy has three main techniques, which include de-reflection, which is when a person is overly self-absorbed on an issue or the attainment of a goal, like they're hyper-fixated on it. So by redirecting the attention, or as the treatment type is called, uh, de-reflecting the attention away from the self, the person can then, quote, become whole by thinking about others rather than themselves. To me, that sounds like um, making someone look at the bigger picture. In a way, I can see that this was applied to that story with the man and his, his wife who passed away because his suffering or his pain was, in a way, selfish. I don't mean selfish negatively, but obviously it was his feelings. So de-reflection would be to kind of flip that around and be like, like think about it you know, from someone else's perspective in this flip situation, how would your wife feel? And to me, that's kind of, that is kind of like de-reflection because it's taking the focus away from that person's own feelings, letting them see kind of the bigger picture and letting them heal from that. So there's paradoxical intention, which is a really weird one to me. It involves asking for the thing that we fear the most. So this is kind of used for people who have like anxiety or phobias. By using humor, basically, they can wish for the thing that they fear most, which then removes the fear from their intention and it helps relieve anxiety-related symptoms. It is kind of weird to me, although I can kind of see it. Like, I don't know how it would be done in practice. I would think that it was something like, I don't know, what's, what's my fear? Forgetting to put pants on going to work. I don't, I don't know. That's not really a fear of mine. But I guess by telling me, like, you know, imagine it happening, want it to happen. Like, wouldn't it be hilarious? I guess it, it does kind of make it, like, seem less scary in a way. I don't know. That one's a little weird. And then lastly, you have Socratic dialogue, which is a technique where they use a person's words as a method of self-discovery. So 
I think this is in a way what you would think of classically in therapy sessions where the therapist would listen very closely to the person's words, to what they're saying, and then point out specific patterns of words or word solutions and let the client see new meaning in them. So this allows the client or patient to realize that the answer lies within and is just waiting to be discovered. I, that was a quote from the website that I got this information from, by the way. So logotherapy is founded on the belief that men, many mental illnesses or issues are actually due to existential angst. Through his work, so in the course of his work, Frankel found that people actually tended to struggle with feelings of meaninglessness, meaninglessness, which he called an existential vacuum. So knowing this, logotherapy can be used to treat a lot of issues that are existential in nature. It's been found to be effective in treatment of substance abuse, PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Now, the main criticism against logotherapy is that it's quote-unquote authoritarian in such that it suggests that there is a clear solution to all the problems. However, Frankel argues that it's not providing a solution, it's just helping people find one themselves. And obviously with mental health, some techniques will work and some won't. It obviously depends on the person and their situation and all these little intricacies. So. Just because you hear that a technique sounds appealing, don't be disappointed if it doesn't seem to click with you. It just means that you've got to try something else. So in the lecture, the slide about logotherapy, which wasn't as in-depth as I had presented, but it was under like hybrid approach. But to me, it sounds a little bit more like a humanistic approach, which is basically believing that people are basically good and that we strive towards self-actualization. Therapy is, as a result, more empathetic and conveys kind of like an unconditional positive regard. So kind of reinforcing that you're not a bad person for feeling this way. There is usually very little direct interpretation, and this allows patients to come up with their own realizations. I think modern therapy might lean towards more of a hybrid approach, especially when it comes to psychiatry, because obviously psychiatrists are able to prescribe medications to help with symptoms. So there is a biomedical approach to treatment there as well. Now, I haven't talked about like genetic implications in mental health. I might leave that for like the next part just because the lecture that I have actually has a lot of neuroscience in it. It like briefly talks about like twin studies, like the whole um, nature versus nurture debate, but it's a lot, <laughs> and I did not really want to talk about neuroscience, so it's going to take some time to parse out the information that is just a little too much, so I won't go over it this episode. I'm going to just leave it at sort of that, and I think what I'm going to do next episode, just to tease it a little, is just briefly go over some more like theories to mental health treatment and then kind of jump into assessment and diagnoses. So that will be interesting, I hope. But that's it for this episode. 
if the editing is a little choppy, it's because I've had to pause a few times and then also pause a few times to, again, yell at my family for being loud, even though I told them I'm recording. I can't wait to move into my condo. <laughs> but yeah, if you enjoyed this, please subscribe or follow or whatever it is. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Frantic Friends Podcast. Again, I do have a screenshot of that incel dating profile if you guys want to gawk. And you can find Forensic Friends on Twitter at Forensic Fiends, although, again, not very active on that. But, yeah, that's about it. I think that's everything. Goodbye. <laughs>